Well, it is good to be with you, and it's good to be with you this Sunday uh, as we head into the week for Christmas. Uh, I'm become more sappy about Christmas um, each year, it seems like. I, I don't know that it's connected to having kids. Maybe it is. But uh, Christmas is just, it's a special time. And we've been experiencing that here at MRBC. It's been a special time. It's a special time in the life of our church. We have music programs that many of you labor for. And we invite guests and we enjoy the praises and the worship and the contemplation of the story of Christ. It's just a special time. It's a special time for family and friends. It's a special time for Christ Church. Yes, we, we have to acknowledge it can be a distracted time. Traditions can become taskmasters. You shop, you spend, you shop and spend. But the season generally provides an environment, in my opinion, in which it, it just doesn't seem like there's quite the lengthy path in our minds and hearts between the normal affairs of everyday life and deep thoughts of Christ. Um, I don't know why that is, but that's my experience. It, it seems that, that there's a shorter connection, there's a, a shorter path in my life between my emotions and my affections and deep thoughts of Christ during Christmas. I don't know if it's because we're so sort of inundated with thinking about the narrative and God's great work and the way God's made us. We're captivated by narrative. We're captivated by the story. I, I can't explain it, but I can simply say I've I found that generally speaking, I just seem to be more easily able during the Christmas season as we're considering our Savior to think deep thoughts of Jesus and have that connection with my affections for him. That said, this year, I've also become a little bit more aware of a lack in that area in, in a particular piece of thinking of Christ, a, a particular area of, of his work that has been absent from my Christmas devotional thinking about Jesus. And I've noticed it more this year than in the past. And this evening, I want to pose a question to you to assess, to see if you share this, this lack in your own thinking with me. Or maybe you all have it figured out, and after tonight, you can counsel me. But this is something that I, I've noticed just this, this season in particular, maybe summed up with this question. Is your Christmas-fueled worship, is your Christmas-fueled worship solely focused on past events? Is your Christmas-fueled worship solely focused on past events? In other words, when you think of Jesus, whom we just sang about, when you think about the incarnation, when you think about the narrative of the events surrounding his birth as told in the Gospels, the prophecies from the Old Testament that proclaim all that we see revealed to us in the Gospels and his life, does your wonder at him, does your amazement at Christ end with his birth? Does your Christmas worship include thoughts of his life, his death, his resurrection. We just sang songs that connected all of those things together to see a fuller picture. 
But does your specifically, I'm saying Christmas worship, I mean the thoughts that you may be more apt to have devotionally during this season because of how much you're going to the narratives in the Gospels, how much you're sharing with family, your children, how much you're sharing with one another about Jesus and about what this season represents, at least for those who are his children. Does that worship, does it include these other elements beyond his birth? And specifically for tonight, I want to ask, does it include a longing for and a meditating on the return of Christ? Is it a long leap in your Christmas meditation, your Christmas devotion from the birth of the Messiah to a longing for, a meditating on, a concentrating on the return of Jesus? The future when All that we're longing for is manifest. I'm convinced that our thoughts of Christ at Christmas should be informed by and should be accompanied by our hope and our longing for the culmination of the ages. Our Christmas devotion, our Christmas thinking about Jesus, I'm convinced, should be accompanied by and informed by our longing, our hope, for Jesus' return, when all things, the whole plan as Aaron started off our service tonight is culminated, is complete. All that Jesus came to do is done. And ultimately, all that we wait for is finally accomplished. Just one example, the song, Joy to the World. Is it about the birth or the second coming of Christ? It's about his second coming. Isaac Watts wrote that song about his second coming. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. It's an appropriate song to sing at Christmas. But it also points toward the second coming. It looks forward to when Jesus comes and reigns here. The whole earth sees that reign and sees his kingdom. As Christians, we live during kind of an interesting time of looking back and looking forward. We walk in that tension. You walk in that tension every day of your Christian life. You're looking back to the finished work of Christ on your behalf, right? It's done. Salvation, redemption from sin accomplished the death, the resurrection of Christ, his complete work all the way from birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension. We look back to that. And yet, at the same time, we look forward to the culmination of all that Jesus accomplished. In other words, the past work isn't where the story ends. We don't just sort of have it better while, while we remain on earth, and then nothing happens in the end. Okay? We all know that. But sometimes our focus is so much on the past work that we forget that we're looking forward, but we live in that tension. Christians are spoken of 
on one hand, like it says in Colossians, as having been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. But on the other hand, you're also, we're also described as those who were born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. All that you have in salvation, you don't have yet. In one sense, it's done. In another sense, we're looking forward to when it's ultimately completed. We enjoy eternal life now. And yet, you don't know the fullness of eternal life yet, right? The culmination of that eternal life until the end of the ages. That's why it's said Christians are saved. And it's a true statement that Christians will be saved. We're looking forward to the completion of the work. Nothing can be added to Christ's work on our behalf in regards to his death, his resurrection, his ascension. But there are plans that are still to unfold. There are things, promises, interaction with the world, and the completion of what, as Peter just says, is reserved for us that we look forward to. So there's that tension as we think about Scripture And from our perspective, these past events, the birth, the ministry of Christ, his death, his resurrection, they completed some of God's redemptive plan. But the end of history is not yet here. Is that a helpful reminder? The end of history is not yet here, right? We're still looking forward to other things that need to take place, other aspects of God's redemptive plan that are still to be fulfilled. And so it's, it's with that we, we look back and we look forward and we walk by faith in that tension, in those realities. And you say, well, what, what does that have to do with Christmas? Well, the coming of Jesus that resulted in many of the messianic promises, most importantly, death, resurrection, ascension, it fulfilled promises. His coming, his work that we look at as past was a fulfillment and is a fulfillment of many of God's plans for the Messiah. But it was also a decisive act of God that demonstrated that all of his covenantal promises to his people would be fulfilled, and there are some things that are yet to occur. And so as we consider his birth, we consider the, as the song says, the dawning of the king, the the coming of the Messiah, it shouldn't only be a past tense consideration for us. We should see the act historically of Christ's coming, his birth, and also at the same time have a view in our minds that sees that that is, that is a piece that has a culmination that we look forward to. And, and that should fuel our worship. It should give us hope. It should give us encouragement. It takes us, it lifts us up, it lifts our eyes up toward Toward thoughts of Christ that stir our souls and make us anxious for his return. And there's so much in God's word about that that often it, it, we, we just kind of leave it aside and we miss out. We miss out on the hope element that we have as Christians. 
We miss out on the hope, the encouragement that we have that this isn't as good as it gets. And, and at Christmas time, it's at least my conviction that my own life, perhaps in yours, I need to think more about the Messiah's birth in connection with his coming. And as we celebrate the fact that, wow, God did this amazing, wonderful thing in sending the Son, that I'm contemplating that, I'm worshiping him for that, I'm magnifying Christ for who he's revealed to be, and at the same time I'm thinking, wow, there's a great plan that's at work here. And it, it isn't all just something that happened 2,000 years ago. It's certainly more than a sentimental story. It's one of triumph that includes what he's going to do at the end of the ages. So our time around the scriptures tonight is going to be a bit different than usual. Um, my, my desire is simply to share with you, which I've already started doing, how my own thinking over the course of this Christmas season is being directed and shaped as I consider Jesus looking toward Christmas. And really, this is going to be more of a reflection around the scriptures than an expositional sermon. Why do that? Well, partly because of the season, but because I, my hope is, is that by doing this together, your own meditations about Jesus are enlarged, are encouraged. That's the hope, that we would all have enlarged thoughts about Christ, his work. And as we head into this week before Christmas, I want our time tonight to fuel your thinking. As we look at our glorious Savior, we want to have a, an all-encompassing view of him that includes all that he set out to do. And I think uniquely, and we're going to see example in the scripture, his birth is connected with everything in such a way that, that it's an easy on-ramp. It's not this massive leap from the past in Bethlehem, you know, and then you have to back out of there and then go get all your eschatology books out and, okay, well, now i got to start thinking about the future. No, 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 there's a much tighter connection there that I think we can see by example in the Scriptures. So I'm going to first read you one portrait from Scriptures of what we look forward to. Just one, there's many to set it in our minds. And then I want to look at some examples surrounding the birth narratives in the Gospel of Luke where we see faithful Old Testament saints prior to the birth of Christ reflecting on the birth of Christ and their view that included everything. So really, it's, it's been striking to me <clears throat> to spend time thinking about these things and I, I just want to share that with you. And uh, hopefully you'll be encouraged by that. So turn your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Second Thessalonians chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 5 through 10. Actually, I'm going to read verses 3 through 10. Paul writing to the believers in Thessalonica writes, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you 
and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. The context of these words of the Apostle Paul are suffering, persecution. The Christians there in Thessalonica were enduring hardship because of the faith. And so Paul wants to encourage them and he's encouraging them to persevere in the midst of what they were facing and his encouragement comes by pointing to the culmination of the ages when Christ is revealed. And he lists out several things that will happen when Christ is revealed. There will be a vindication of believers. God is going to repay with perfect justice those who were afflicting and are afflicting and have afflicted Christians. There's going to be a judgment of God's enemies, of Christ's enemies. He's going to be revealed, dealing out retribution, punishment of the wicked. There's going to be relief for believers. Relief for believers. Verse 7, he's going to give relief to those who are afflicted, relief to those who are here, who have been toiling in the faith. And there's going to be glory for believers. In verse 10, he comes to be glorified in his saints as his glory is reflected in his people and to one another. And then most strikingly in this text, to me anyway, and to be marveled at that his saints that day will marvel at the Lord Jesus. Wonder, amazement, astonishment at the person of Christ. The fulfillment of long-awaited joy to be marveled at among all who believe, and that is captivating. And the thought that one day we're going to have our minds, our eyes, our hearts consumed in marveling at the Lord Jesus should impact how we marvel now and how we think when we look back at Christ's birth. It's, it seems only fitting that as we marvel at the incarnation and we marvel at the miracle of what was involved in the sending of the Messiah, that we're also thinking about the fact that one day we're going to marvel at him in his presence among all who have believed. And so with that picture in your mind, with that view of the future, turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. We're going to start by looking at Mary's song, The Magnificat which was introduced a little bit this morning in Pastor Rick's sermon. And as he pointed out this morning, this song is a response of a faithful 
scripture-filled Israelite. And it's a response to the revelation that she would bear the Messiah. This is a response to the truth that the Messiah was coming, the Messiah was going to be born, and that she herself would be the, the one whom God used to bring him into the world. Verse 46, and Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior for he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time all generations will count me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Now, if you look at those verses, and if you were to spiritualize all of those verses, that is, try to find some sort of spiritual fulfillment and direct application in every verse for the Christian life today, you would do great violence to Mary's song. She has confidence in the fulfillment of God's promises that she sees, reflects on, and rejoices in, in the news that the Messiah was coming. The news of the Messiah's birth caught up Mary to think these thoughts and proclaim these things. And they include big thoughts about all that the Messiah would accomplish. The expectation that we still look forward to the expectation of all that will happen in the culmination of the age when, when Jesus is ultimately reigning and he sets all things in order. It's amazing. In verses 46 through 50, she's mainly focused on, on the personal benefit, the Lord's gracious favor, his help to her. In verses 51 through 53, it, it's, it's larger, it, it's worldwide benefit. In verses 54 and 55, it's focused on the benefit specifically to God's special chosen people, Israel. Now just listen to the statements that she makes and we can ask, how many of these things have been done in full? How many of the things that she proclaims prior to the Messiah's birth inspired to think at the news of the Messiah's birth, how many of those things as we sit here today have been completed in full? Verse 51, he has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. The reversal of the moral and social order in a world that's ravaged by sin. God's ultimate final setting of all things aright his final setting of everything in its place and, and in order of how it should all go in righteousness. That's not happened all the way yet. The full vindication of God's people 
That's not happened yet. And as we read in 2 Thessalonians, that's still to happen. And God's faithful fulfillment of all the covenant promises to Abraham, that's not happened yet. And yet they're spoken of by this girl who's about to give birth to the Messiah as if they're a done deal. The news, the promise of the Messiah's coming, she looks forward, she speaks prophetically of these things as taking place because he's coming, because that promise has been fulfilled, and she looks at the whole thing with messianic expectation and hope and proclaims them as if they're done. The birth of Jesus, in other words, for Mary, the coming of the Messiah, meant a whole lot more than just the manger scene. That's the point. She looked and saw everything. She looked and expected the complete redemption of her people, the complete fulfillment of all the promises of Abraham as she thought about the Messiah's coming. Now, her thoughts weren't unfounded just because those things didn't happen right away, but it hadn't been revealed to her all the details and outworkings of God's redemptive plan, and it hadn't been revealed yet the cross and the resurrection and the ascension and that there would be another return. All of that hadn't been revealed, but it doesn't change the fact that the promise and the fulfillment of the Messiah's coming to his long-awaited people was looked at as one of great joy because that means that everything that God's ever promised is going to be set in order and set aright. There's coming a day of culmination. There's coming a day where Christ would turn the world upside down or right side up, I should say. And the completion of God's redemptive work will accomplish all of these things for his people Israel, for the world, for all those who fear him in mercy. I'm struck by that. I'm struck that on the precipice of the birth of Christ, that, that Mary's thinking was so big about all that the Messiah meant. And I think simply in reflection, it's an example for us. It's an example for us as we reflect and we think about the coming of our Savior, and then we even look back at his work that Mary didn't have a chance to see, that we also think about all that those things mean for all of eternity, and that we're, our minds are filled with expectation and hope. The Messiah's come. We're celebrating that. We're thinking about that. The Messiah was the suffering servant. He gave his life. The Messiah was resurrected. He went back to heaven. He's coming. He's coming. He's gonna set everything in order. We're all gonna be vindicated. We're gonna, all affliction's gonna be set right. Enemies are gonna be judged, and we're gonna marvel at the Lord Jesus for all eternity. Another example, just turn just a little bit, just one page or a couple pages over, depending on how big of a Bible you have. Verse 66. Verse 66. Zacharias' prophecy. The Benedictus. It's called that because the first word in Latin of his word in verse 68, blessed, is Benedictus. Starting in verse 67, Zechariah, another faith-filled, hope-filled, expecting, Messiah-expecting Israelite. As, as again, as he sits on the threshold of Christ's birth, 
And in his own life, as he's responding to the birth of his son, who's the forerunner for the Messiah, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 67, and his father, that is, John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Now in verse 76, he turns his attention to John the Baptist. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Do you hear the anticipation in Zechariah's Holy Spirit-inspired reflection and song? Jesus hasn't been born yet, and he says that God has visited his people and accomplished redemption. He says that this horn of salvation was raised up. He says that 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 horn would bring about salvation from Israel's enemies, from the hand of all who hate them, and that the oath which was sworn to Abraham would be fulfilled. So similar to Mary, again, Zechariah, he he anticipates total deliverance for God's people in the Messiah. And that picture of total deliverance includes things that where we sit in the scope of redemptive history are still not yet to take place. But that was a Holy Spirit-inspired response of a faithful, expectant Israelite at the threshold of the birth of the Messiah. Salvation of enemies, from enemies, and God's faithful fulfillment of all that he's promised to do. Which, as we read in 2 Thessalonians, is going to come to pass. And we look forward to that as well. The, The connection of seeing the arrival of the Messiah and seeing his birth and the news of his birth and then automatically in devotional thought that these two by example thought of all that that meant it, it's stirring it's striking it makes me want to think bigger thoughts about our, our savior it makes me want to have my, my heart and mind captivated by the fact that there are things that aren't yet to come to pass, or that are yet to come to pass, that I need to look forward to, that I can glory in with hope, that I can worship Christ in light of. And in one sense, as these have done, see it as a done deal. The Messiah has come. These things are, in, in one sense, as good as complete. 
Similarly, um, just by an example, when Paul writes in the, the golden chain of salvation, Romans 8, right? He refers to believers as, our, as glorified. It's a done deal in one sense. So we, we see these things, these, these people so close to the birth of the Messiah, and their, their, their reflection, their worship was, was massive. It wasn't centered on simply the uniqueness of the event. It was the importance of the event as it related to the rest of human history, and in particular, God's redemptive plan. One more example briefly. Simeon. Still in Luke, Jesus is presented at the temple in chapter 2, starting in verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ the Lord's Messiah. And he came in the spirit into the temple and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, now Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Great expectation. And what a sweet picture it is to imagine Simeon, who had received this precious promise from the Lord. And he, he, he looks at, a, at this baby. He looks at the Christ child. And he sees, he sees the end. He sees the accomplishment. He sees all that this means, all that this would bring about, all that would be fulfilled in the person of the Messiah. And he looks at a baby and says, my eyes have seen your salvation. And then at the end, Anna going to those who are expecting the redemption of Jerusalem and saying he's here. The birth of Christ is in God's economy and God's overarching plan, connected and important and should fuel our thinking about the completion of everything that God has set out to do in Christ. The Old Testament saints, 
these three by example and certainly others, they understood the ultimate significance of the Messiah's arrival. It's so interesting that the exact outworking and timing of all that would come to pass in God's plan and messianic program hadn't been revealed to them. Okay, they didn't see every detail, every nuance. But, but so more than we, admittedly, in these early stages of Revelation, they were overwhelmed with the thought. They were absolutely overwhelmed with the thought of the ultimate eschatological significance of the arrival of the Messiah. His coming for them meant everything. It meant all that God had promised to do. It takes, every, it takes a, a concerted effort, a conscious effort on my part for me to set my mind on the yet-to-be-revealed aspects of the Christian faith. It, it is, if it's my own weakness, my own affliction, I, it is so easy for me to, to look at the past glory and the past work without giving due thought to the future work. And so as I, as, as I think about the birth of Christ, I, I, want, I want my mind, I want my heart, I want, I want our minds, I want yours to be opened, enlarged, broadened, to focus on the significance of his birth, but think big thoughts about the coming of Christ. I, really, this, these last few weeks, thinking about this, being struck by the way that they viewed Christ's birth, I, I understand I'm not conflating us and Israel or anything like that, but seeing how, how much it meant to them and how theological their thinking and long-term their thinking was as they, they looked at the baby that was coming, it, it's made me want to be so saturated with biblical expectation that to think of Jesus is to think of his eternal reign that I don't have to do theological gymnastics to get my brain in devotional thought and in thoughts of Christ and in as we consider him and how glorious he is, that, that I don't have to, you know, spend a week reading eschatology books just to get my mind to think about the fact that he's coming back. There should be a shorter trajectory in our thoughts and minds and hearts for us. And I, I think that God's word provides all that for us. Just often we, we miss it. I've missed it. Just by way of example, we read 2 Thessalonians. Paul's writing that to people being persecuted. The coming of Christ was hope and encouragement for them. He wasn't giving them a, a lecture in the curiosities of end times events. He was writing to people that were enduring persecution and saying, hold on, be encouraged. Christ is coming back. And when he does, all of this is gonna be set right and you're gonna be marveling at him for all eternity amongst all those who have believed. That's powerful. That's powerful for the heart. It's powerful for the soul in the midst of the life that we live in that tension between what, ha what has happened that we look toward and that all of our hope is based on and then what will happen that we look forward to. We're big fans of Christmas at my house. I'm sure most of you can, can relate. My wife and I, we like it when the weather turns cold. We, we like to drink warm drinks and bundle up in coats and enjoy the plaza lights, all those things. We like singing Christmas songs at our house. My kids like Christmas songs. And it's easy when you sing those things to think about Christ, and, and we love that. 
But I was struck by this. If, if my deepest thoughts of Jesus this season and any time other than this season, but as we're approaching Christmas, if my deepest thoughts about Jesus this season end, if they terminate with me simply enjoying a sentimental look at the birth narrative, a sentimental look at the birth narrative and then contenting myself with the temporal joys of the holiday season, then I'm missing out on a significant portion of encouragement and hope that God has provided in his word and missing out on a significant aspect of what it means to walk with Christ with expectation, with an understanding that this isn't as good as it gets. Christmas season even, on your best day, with the best thoughts of Jesus, is not as good as it gets. And I, I think we need to, to own that. Press into that. Enjoy the good that we have. Enjoy the fact that we can celebrate at Christmas as those who've been saved. And we can appreciate the uniqueness of the Christmas season and glory in it and enjoy all the temporal blessings that God has given us. But with a view that, man, it's gonna be way better than this. This is just a precursor to marveling at him, being captivated by the person of Jesus for all eternity. The greatest experience of Christ that we have won't be now. It won't be even considering his birth in, in lofty thoughts at Christmas time, but it is yet to come when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day, Paul says, and to be marveled at among all who have believed. So in your personal devotional life, your time of considering Jesus' birth. Give effort, give time, think, look for scripture passages that also inform us about the culmination of all things. Consider the beginning, the Messiah's coming in that sense, that beginning, along with deep longing thoughts for the end. Informed by scripture, of course, okay? Think about those things. It, it doesn't mean, I hope that the takeaway from at least our time together tonight is not that Myrl's saying think less about Jesus' birth. No, it's saying think bigger thoughts about Jesus' birth. Think thoughts about Jesus' birth that include Jesus' coming. I want to be better about that. I want to be so saturated with the scriptures that talk about what we look forward to that it's not this massive leap for me to read the narratives and read how Mary and Zechariah responded to the coming of the Messiah, that in my mind, that, that, that resonates. That we're saying, man, my heart is captivated with hope during Christmas, not, not only misty thoughts about his birth. Misty, sentimental, emotional thoughts about his birth are good, okay? It is good to be captivated by Christ in all of his life and his work. But I want more. I want, I want to be captivated by his coming because that's what we look forward to. That's our, that's our hope. 